Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 310th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Natalie Taylor. Natalie is the owner of Natalie Taylor Consulting Services, an independent virtual RIA, and is also the head of financial advice for Monarch Money, a personal financial management tool that helps consumers track their spending and net worth over time. What's unique about Natalie, though, is how during her years of working for a fintech company, she realized that providing valuable financial advice that's more affordable for the masses ultimately requires collecting only the data and delivering only the advice that will provide the greatest amount of impact and value to the client and filtering out the rest that just isn't cost-effective advice for the end consumer. In this episode, we talk in depth about how while working at LearnVest, Natalie realized that their financial advisors were much more limited by the constraints of data and time and fees that clients can pay than the traditional advisor, which inspired her to develop her impact-weighted framework that focuses on providing only the truly most impactful advice to help clients move forward right now. How while also working at LearnVest, Natalie developed a brand voice guide to help all their advisors communicate advice to clients more consistently and revolved around five principles for their advisors to implement during the advice delivery process, including be the coach, be the expert, be the cheerleader, wide lens, narrow lens, and listen and direct. And how the acquisition of LearnVest by a large financial services company and the repurposing of its technology tools ultimately led to Natalie leaving and having to dismantle the advice offering she originally helped to build and develop. We also talk about how in the early stages of Natalie's career, she felt that as a young advisor, she was not prepared to give advice at the level of an expert and instead switched firms to work with a mentor who recognized her talents and gave her more opportunities to work with higher caliber clients and really build her confidence with them. How after leaving LearnVest, Natalie focused on speaking engagements and consulting, but reached a crossroads as she recognized that she missed the type of direct impact that she had for clients in previous roles that just doesn't come from consulting alone. And how Natalie ultimately found that she didn't have to choose between the desire for breadth of impact and depth of impact, and instead could choose to do both by splitting her time between the launch of her own independent REA and simultaneously joining a fintech company, Monarch Money, as the head of their financial advice, where she could help them systematize advice for the masses. And be certain to listen to the end, where Natalie shares how working in fintech and at an RA helped her understand how important it is to balance between advice that is exact and solutions that may not be ideal, but help clients actually move forward and take the next positive step. Why Natalie believes it's so important for newer, younger advisors to not get discouraged by the uncertainty of career paths, instead simply concentrate on getting clear on the values that are most important for them and using those values as a filter to find the next steps on their paths. And why Natalie believes the key to her success stems from developing her own personal list of six core values that she and her husband use to filter their major family and career decisions and then review each year to ensure the ongoing decisions they're making are still in alignment with what's really most important to them and can keep propelling them forward in their careers and their lives. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Natalie Taylor. Welcome, Natalie Taylor, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you joining us today. And and 
looking forward to a conversation around what I I kind of think of as this new emerging sort of career track for uh, maybe like a, a small subset of advisors. You know, for for most advisors, you know, we kind of get a couple of choices about how our careers evolve. You can be really good at getting clients and doing business development, and and you go build a client base. You can be really good at serving clients, but maybe not the best at getting them. And now there's some jobs for advisors that simply want to be awesome service advisors and work for a firm that's got like a marketing process uh, to bring those clients in to be served. Uh, you, as firms scale, there's starting to be a growth of centralized financial planning departments. And so people that just want to be like super awesome, nerdy financial planning resources to support a bunch of advisors, not even necessarily have to do any client stuff, that's emerging as an option as well. But to me, the, the interesting parallel for this is over the past 10 years, there's been this growth of fintech firms. And, you know, fintech to me in its early days was like payments companies like Stripe, uh, like early days of Bitcoin and blockchain, uh, online brokerage platforms like Robinhood, uh, you know, businesses that were meant to offer products directly to consumers that didn't necessarily involve advice or advisors. We just most technology has been a little bit more either the pipes and infrastructure of how the financial system runs or something that lets people buy the products that they want to buy because they can just go online and buy it. But there's this new emergence of advice and advisor-oriented technology firms. I even struggle about whether to call them like fintech or tech-enabled advice services. And, you know, it's it's platforms like LearnVest to me that I at least think about in that category and others that have come up in recent years. And so I know you have you have lived a version of that journey. You you spent the first part of your career in the I guess I call it the traditional advisor realm. You spent the past decade of your career in that tech enabled advisory services, advisor technology side of the business. Uh, and and so just I'm I'm fascinated to talk about the new like the new things that we can do as we start building these advisor skill sets beyond just going out and getting clients and serving clients. And and you've lived so much of that over the past decade that I'm just actually really excited to hear what that journey has been like once you said, I'm not just going to do individual clients anymore. We're going to go in this new direction. Yeah. Yeah, that's so well said. And it is so interesting how things have changed over the last decade. You know, I, I in those sort of traditional, you can be a rainmaker, you can be a service advisor, or maybe you can be a planner to planners. Um, you know, I started in the business thinking, working under a rainmaker and thinking, I'll be a great Doogie Hauser service advisor. I'll be the real smart one that runs alongside the rainmaker. And, and I sort of thought that that's as much as I could aspire to, um, because the idea of rainmaking at 23, you know, looking 14 was very overwhelming. And I didn't know anything yet. And I didn't want to tell anybody what to do until I knew anything. And so, um, so I always saw myself as, okay, well, I'll be the Doogie Hauser type and I will partner with a, a rainmaker. And I had a wonderful, phenomenal mentor uh, in my first seven years um, that was that rainmaker that I got to partner with. And I got to learn and grow and be in front of clients and do all kinds of stuff um, and and learn so many things. Um, but it, it, And the, the move to sort of fintech or tech-enabled advice was, I don't want to call it an accident, uh, but... But it wasn't some sort of intentional strategy. It was just, I was frustrated that there was no way to help people of my own age. At that time, I was in my late 20s. Um, 
there was no way to help them profitably in the traditional financial planning firm sort of setup. And I didn't understand why we couldn't use tech to do more of what humans were doing. There was work that I was doing in the practice for clients that they didn't need to pay me to do. Um, they they should have these tech tools um, accessible to them directly, just like TurboTax exists to to, right. to enable a large swath of people to to file their own taxes. I I believed that there should be some sort of robo planner, if you will, that that should exist that's analogous, that won't meet the needs of every client or every person, but for those in their 20s, 30s, and maybe even early 40s, um, that much of that lift on the financial planning side um, could be done by technology and not have to do be done by humans, which could allow the price point to come down. And so in exploring that sort of idea, I found LearnBest. You know, I was Googling around about you know, tech advice and how, you know, advice for 20 year olds. And, um, and that's how I found Learn Best and um, was very aligned with, you know, what, what I wanted to build was very aligned with where they were wanting to go. And so that's, that's how I sort of by happenstance ended up in technology. Um, but it, it, it wasn't a strategy. And, and those yeah. were very early days, you know, Learn Best was right. really the first in that part of fintech, if you will. Yeah. So I, I, I want to dig a lot further in the, in the LearnVest soon, but first just help us understand a little bit more of the early, the early days of your career. Did you start straight out of school? Had you always wanted to be a financial advisor? Like what was the, what was the entree and start in the, in the advisory business for you? Ah, okay. So <laughs> real, real talk. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, um, I graduated from college in 2003 and found it very challenging to find a job. Um, I'd gone to a good university and had a great GPA, all those things. But um, it was sort of during that transition to applying for jobs online and not in person. Like that that whole sort of industry was changing. And I found it very difficult to be seen and, and find a job. And so my uh, older sister's college roommate was an advisor at Ameriprise, American Express actually at the time, American Express Financial Advisors, and said, Natalie, you should try this. There's an office in La Jolla near where you live, and um, you should go in for an info session. And so that's how I became a financial advisor. Through um, your older sister's college roommate. That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, because you graduated, needed a job. That's right. I could go back and tell a story that you know I was a double major in economics and sociology, and financial planning was a perfect fit. But none of that would be true, um, I, because I just I took the job that I could get, and and in in learning there, you know, I was in what they called their P one channel, their platform one channel, which meant I was an employee making minimum wage, and. Um, it was a very like sales oriented culture. There was a whiteboard and we moved up or down on the whiteboard based on how many new clients we got. And yep. um, what I realized very quickly is that I really didn't like the sales aspect, I, but I was actually good at it. Um, I, I was at the top of the board. Um, I got 14 clients in my first four months as a financial advisor. Um, but Ooh, doing what? I, I don't I don't know, Michael. <laughs> But, but I was panicked because um, people older than me, because I was 23, um, were looking mm. to me to give them advice. And I took that responsibility really seriously. And um, it was very uncomfortable for me to feel like I was in a position where um, 
I needed to rise to a challenge that I wasn't prepared to do. And so I very quickly left the P1 channel and found a phenomenal mentor, a franchise owner of Ameriprise in the P2 channel um, and worked for him for seven years. Um, and, And he was an incredible mentor and created an environment where I could learn and grow and um and so so that's that's kind of how I got started. Interesting. So the P2 channels the the more independent channel under the under the I guess going Ameriprise, but I guess then American Express now Ameriprise network system. That's right. Yep. So he could largely run his own business the way he wanted to run it, but had access to I mean he had a payout from Ameriprise, but it was much higher in the P2 channel right. than the P1 channel and and had access to all the like home office sort of um, resources that you would in P1 or P2. So what was the nature of the job, I guess, like that you applied to with him as you were transitioning from from P1 to P2 and, and I guess like w- wanted to get away from a role that had so much sales obligation, sales expectations? Yeah, if I remember correctly, I had to step down to paraplanner versus financial advisor um, as sort of a penalty for going from P1 to P2. Um, I had to be a paraplanner for a year. And so I was. And then and then we changed my title back to financial advisor. Um, and Neil, my, my boss, senior partner and mentor, um, he was phenomenal at bringing new clients in. He worked by referral. Um, he cared very deeply about our clients. He believed that you could have a successful business and do right by clients. Um, he was a person of deep integrity. And I was a lot more analytical than he was, uh, which was a great fit. Um, so I was able to get deep in the weeds on casework and got exposure to so much and learned so much by by doing so much casework. You know, we would have years where we would bring in 40 or 50 new clients and it was a relatively small practice. We were the only two advisors. Um, So I got to see a lot of situations and I got to learn a lot. Um, You know, I was young and I think my perspective was I'm supposed to be the smart one and then come up with the answers. And I think I think about financial planning fundamentally differently now and and what my role is as a financial advisor. But um, but it was a tremendous opportunity to learn. And, you know, if I if I can be candid, you know, Neil was a black man and I was a young woman in an industry full of largely um, white men. And I think having a mentor who also didn't look like the crowd was really empowering for me in a way that I don't think I realized until later in my career. Um, and that was that was very powerful for me. Just I, tell me more about that. Like, what was what was empowering? What, what made it so impactful or or how did that show up for you? Yeah, good question. I, you know, I, I looked up to Neil very much and, um, thought so highly of him. And then we'd go to conferences and we would both just stick out like a sore thumb. And I think for, for me to look up to him so deeply, um, allowed me to think that I could be worthy of the same sort of, Hmm position, um, even though I didn't look, you know, it, 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 it meant that being successful and being good at what you do um, in this industry specifically did not have to hinge on the color of my skin or whether I was a man or a woman. And, you know, it sounds so simple, but it was really powerful. You know, I remember my best friend's dad said, well, you'll never make it as a financial advisor because you don't golf. And 
And his, you know, his deal breaker goal. Yeah. (laughs) And his son, who, you know, uh, was a financial advisor with Morgan Stanley and, you know, golfed Mm -hmm. and and did quite well for himself. Um, But but I think that's what it was is just that, like, oh, this isn't part of the mold that I need to fit to be successful or to be worthy in this industry. And that was, I I think that's what it came down to that was so empowering. So I think you said you, you stayed with Neil for seven years. So, was it that similar kind of role just all the way through? He went and got clients and then you did the planning work and made sure that the clients were were well served? For the most part, yeah. I, towards the end, I started bringing in clients as well, but that was never my primary role. Um, I will say that in that practice, we didn't really have C&D clients. We had we 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 only took a clients and we only kept a clients and Neil's perspective on that uh was that we would just both work together to do as well as we could for every a client and so there was never an expectation of me as an associate taking c and d clients or oh, interesting anything like that we we worked as a team and so i was sort of the default head of planning and asset management so i managed the portfolios and i wrote all the plans um, but I was in client meetings and not to take notes. You know, Neil would turn to me and say, Natalie, what do you think we should do given where the market is? Or can you, you know, can you address that question about where we are in the market and, and what should we should be thinking about? And so that opportunity that he gave me, I, I don't think I realized at the time how valuable it was. But I got to be a co-planner and a co-advisor alongside him with our clients, with our A clients, um, rather than you know, getting kind of relegated to C and D clients and seeing what I could make of it. Um, and that, that really helped build my confidence. It helped build my communication skills um, and my knowledge, because when you're the one in the meeting saying the things, you've really got to own that information. Uh-huh. So what led him to say, we're just not taking on any, any C and D clients? I mean, just, it's such a common model when there's a, a second advisor on board and you're a senior advisor to say, hey, we're we're gonna we're gonna let the second advisor you know, cut cut their teeth, gain a little more experience with these C and D clients that may not be a great fit for my time, but you know, good good fit for their time. What what may Neil like I just reject that framework. Yeah, it's a good question. Um I you know, I don't know that I can say for sure. Um, where he was coming from and making that decision with this 23-year-old woman who looked so young. But, you know, I I think he saw potential in me. You know, we had talked for many years about me taking over the practice. And I think he wanted to train me and wanted to invest in me. And he saw that to be the best way to invest in me. And and I think he saw me as an asset to clients. Um, and, And I think that was very, very different. But I think he felt like, you know, Natalie has the ability to do well in front of clients and um, solidify those relationships with the firm. And that's important. And I think he then was able to see from doing that, that clients, you know, it got to the point where some clients would just request to meet with me. Or, you know, Neil was out of the office for an entire month because of some family health things going on. And, I just did all the meetings while he was gone. You know, the, the practice did not slow down. Um, and we closed new business during that time period. And so I think he was also able to see the fruit of what it looks like to really lift someone up. Um, 
And I also think from an ego standpoint, he was a very evolved person that he didn't need to be the smartest person in the room or mm. the, you know, the star player. I think he was perfectly comfortable lifting me up um, and helping me to, to experience what it feels like to be in that lead role as well. And, you know, what a, what a gift, what a gift to, to start my career that way for the first, you know, seven years. Well, yeah, I, I have to admit just hearing that there's a... A sort of a, a somewhat harsh truth statement there about the dynamic, at least relative to what what a lot of other advisory firms do. That to me, just what I what I hear in that essentially is, you know, Neil had so much confidence that you were going to be successful where you needed to be with a clients that he just wanted to put you in front of a clients and. I find for a lot of advisory firms that do that model where we're going to give the younger, newer advisor, the C&D clients, it's almost explicitly done in the context of, well, you're a newer advisor and you're still building some experience. So here's some here's some clients you can build your experience with and you know maybe their needs aren't quite as complex. And frankly, if it doesn't go well, the business is not at risk as much because they weren't generating as much revenue for the firm. And like it, it, it there is sort of an implicit like, well, you don't know that much yet, so why don't we let you practice over here in this safe sandbox? And and I don't candidly, I don't think that's an unreasonable approach from a business perspective. But to me, like a big part of what you're describing and framing how Neil approached it was no, like I think Natalie's going to be that good with my A clients, so why wouldn't I just give her at bats with A clients like now and immediately and forever going forward? Yep. Yeah. And and I don't think it's a bad model either to say, you know, let's let the associate take simpler, you know, I, I hate yep. saying C&D clients at all, but like, you know, simpler cases. I don't think that's a bad model at all. I think what's important is that you let an associate own, own relationships or co-own relationships mm-hmm. in a very real way, that they are not just the person prepping for the meeting and taking notes during the meeting. Um, but they're a real player in the relationship, whatever that looks like, um, whether they're fully owning it or co-owning it with a lead advisor. Um, and, and I think that was really important. And, you know, in my own practice, which is newer, I have a lead advisor who uh, works for me and she is absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, I've gotten to do the same thing for her that, that was done for me. And, you know, the amount of confidence that I get to have and the way that I get to see the business grow with me not even having met some of our clients, but they are, I mean, really complex, you know, high level, wonderful A plus clients for us that Cindy completely owns. And um, I think realizing the lack of ego in that there's a, there's a time period where me as the rainmaker and the owner you know, it's appropriate for me to be the one with the answer for Cindy, for right. her to come and say, I have this case, can you help? But that the the model is that we then get to the transition point, which we experienced this year, where I'm coming to her with a problem and I'm letting her solve it because, yep. you know, I've invested in her and lifted her up and given her that exposure so that she's capable of of that. And um, I think it, I think it's, it's just critical, but but it's it's so incredible to see her thrive. Very cool. So so you're going down this wonderful path with Neil and getting all these cool opportunities, but obviously you're not you're not there anymore. So so now take <laughs> us back again to what changed that like 
you had this wonderful role with a wonderful mentor who's giving you great opportunities with some of the top clients of the firm. Uh, but that obviously wasn't scratching some itch because you're not there anymore. So what what happened? Yeah, I think a couple things came together that that resulted in me leaving. Um, one of them was that my desire to serve people my own age was growing and not my parents' age. You know, our practice served people my parents' age who were pre-retired, um, which was great. But but I think my innate desire to serve my peers um, became stronger and stronger. So, so by then, like you're seven years in, so you're like coming right up on your 30th birthday. Yep. And that point where a lot of us, I think, get to as advisors, like you're seven years in, you're crossing into your 30s, your friends that are now hitting some of the complexity points that start coming by the time you're getting in your 30s and like your career is growing, you're making a little more money, there's some complexity starting to arise, you have a friend for a long time who's a financial advisor and they reach out and say, hey, I've got some questions, can I work with you? And you have to say no. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And 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 feeling like, I couldn't solve for how to do that profitably and sustainably within the model that we were in and and realizing that it was more than just, you know, Neil was happy for me to take whatever clients I could bring in, but realizing that sort of the way that it was set up from the start was unsustainable to make to make a price point and a service model that would work for those kinds of clients and it was largely meeting a different set of needs that they didn't really have yet you know they they didn't really have a lot of assets to manage yet but their planning needs were really deep right. um and so i i think that combined with um honestly getting getting pregnant with my first kiddo <laughs> um and a relocation to santa barbara as well i think there was a lot of things at play in that sort of season of life that that year where i ultimately made the change to leave neil's office and um, and ultimately transition to LearnVest. So what what was limiting from the from the business model end? I mean, was Neil a like you know we only serve people that have a billion dollar minimum? It was just like a sheer assets thing, or was it something broader around what was limiting? Uh, yeah, good question. I think you know we had a a really sort of distributed practice in terms of revenue stream. So about a third of our revenue came from planning fees, a third of our revenue came from AUM, and then a third of our revenue came from insurance, annuities, you know, pri- some private REITs. Um, and and that model worked well. And and our A, you know, our A clients, um, that's how their fees split up, right? They might have a $2,500 or $3,500 or even $5,000 planning fee, and then they may have you know, a million dollars invested with us at 1% with actively managed mutual funds underneath. I mean, it's kind of wild to think about now because I do things so differently now. Um, And then they would have, you know, oftentimes some need for a private REIT or an annuity product with a living benefit. You know, this was the early 2000s or some sort of life insurance need, although we we didn't do a ton of like, (laughs) we were not a VUL for everybody sort of practice by any means. But but that revenue split, you know, the the clients that I wanted to serve, they could maybe try to afford that planning fee, but it was steep. And the carrying cost for us of a client was over $1,000. So we weren't profitable unless we were charging at least $1,000 as a planning fee. Um, that was a steep price for a 29-year-old or a 30-year-old to pay. And then there was no AUM yet. Um, and 
there was maybe some 30-year term that they needed, but there were no annuities that a 29-year-old needed or um, private REITs that they needed. And so that's what I mean when I say it was very challenging to serve that kind of demographic of client profitably within that sort of uh, framework. And so how did you land in this realm of saying, okay, I'm this isn't doing it for me. I want to find some other way to do this advice thing and be able to serve people my, my own age. So how do you land at a company like LearnVest, particularly, I mean, 10 years ago, like this is a new startup. We're just in the very early days of quote unquote, robo advisors, like Bel- Wetterman and Wealthfront had just launched in the mainstream 10 years ago. And LearnVest was even a different thing besides those. Like just how do you find your way to that from I've I've been working in Ameriprise for the past seven years, which just I not to knock Ameriprise, but I think of like Ameriprise, very traditional financial advisor, financial services, LearnVest, like opposite side of the spectrum. Totally. Totally. I mean, one Google search can change your life. Like that's the answer. Is <laughs> I just I was like, is there anything like this out there? You know, I I just and and so I started Googling and I found LearnVest and they happened to be hiring at the time for part-time remote CFPs. And I had just had my first baby. Um, and I was like, well, goodness, I could be a part-time remote CFP for them and just sort of dip my toe in the water as I transitioned to motherhood and my, you know, life was in flux as, as I transitioned to motherhood mm-hmm. and as we moved from San Diego to Santa Barbara for a um, career opportunity for my husband. Um, and at the time, Ameriprise had rules around you had to be within a certain number of miles from your primary office. And if you weren't, you couldn't be associated with that office anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So there were a, a lot of things that came together, but ultimately that's that's how I started at LearnVest. And um, I started as a planner making $120 for every plan I could deliver. Um, and, you know, very quickly my comp package and my role, you know, expanded, but, um, but they were just at the very early stages of the RIA and trying to figure out how do we, how do we do this? And it was a really cool opportunity for me to be able to be a part of building. How do we do this? You know, and within five years, we had an RIA with 14,000 clients. Um, so that we're all paying a planning fee and granted the planning fee was quite low, but that was phenomenal growth for an RIA in, in five years yeah. of getting to exist, right. From 20, 2012 to closing in yeah. early 2018. And, um, the opportunity that quickly opened up for me at LearnVest was really compelling, and and that sort of accelerated my momentum into this into this change. So, for those who aren't familiar just with the the, the industry and the business and what was going on back then, just can you describe what LearnVest was was doing, particularly then when you when you first showed up? It's I guess like twenty twelve twenty thirteen timeframe, and you're just making this transition. Right. Yeah. So LearnVest started as a, um, I would say like a media brand. Um, so lots of content, um, f- personal finance content, originally focused for women in their 20s and 30s, but quickly expanded to women and men in their 20s and 30s. And back then, you know, it's only 10 years ago, but it was it was 10 whole years ago, if you know, if you know what I mean. Yep. And um, there weren't a lot of personal finance brands that had any sort of millennial year. Um, you know, none, none of the big players were, were able to speak to this audience. And so, and we had millions of, of readers, monthly readers, and 
So we we had found a way to really connect as a brand um, and provide personal finance content to millennials. And in 2012, uh, LearnVest launched an RIA um, at a low price point. So it was anywhere from like, I think, $299 to $399 up front and then $19 a month. And um, you got to work with a planner remotely. So at, at first, we were a distributed team. We were all working from home from wherever, everywhere from Hawaii to New York. Um, which was which was very tech forward in yes. in 2012. Like we're going to make a firm that has advisors, and they're not in the office. That's right. That's right. Yes. So um, I, I know it. It like it doesn't sound so revolutionary now, but at the time, it it was quite revolutionary to build the way we were building. And uh, because I was early, and because I, you know played every role, right? Like I, I did sales calls. I, I was an advisor. I was the brand voice manager. I was the director of advice implementation. I ran an advice strategy team that helped inform the tech build, you know, that basically I ran a team of SMEs uh, for the tech build of the planning software. I got to do all kinds of stuff there. Um, but anyway, that's what LearnVest was. So it started as a media brand, a content site. We built an RIA and you know, we and were, we're just trying to do this like really low priced, at least relative to industry, really yes. low priced ongoing planning offering at three to four hundred dollars up front and two hundred and forty bucks a year. Exactly. A exactly. Yep. And we played with the service model and played with pricing and all that kind of stuff. But yes, that's the gist of it. And um, and you know, in the in the course of doing so, because we were a VC backed, you know, tech company. Um, we had resources that the regular uh, regular RIA would not have, um, but we were able to really expand our reach, and we expanded into a Learn Best at Work channel as well, and had very major players, um, you know, accessing Learn Best for their employees. Um, and again, like there are plenty of companies doing that now, Origin, North Star, you know, etc. There's 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 several out there, but um, at the time you know, that, that wasn't really a thing. And so we got to be, you know, among the first in that space and really explore it. And I think just the learning curve that we all got to have being there, you know, now I look around at my cohort of who I worked with at LearnVest, especially in the early days and where we all are now in the industry. Some of us have opened practices. Some of us are CEOs of, of fintech companies, you know, like we, we've, we've gone in so many different directions, but that early team and, and what we were doing, that that net new thing that we were working on was really powerful. So help us understand a little bit more just what the vision was for this business model and just how it would work. I mean, I think for a lot of advisors today, just the thought of like, we're going to charge a few hundred dollars a year. We're getting like, we're we're doing plans for $120 of of hard cost just feel so distant from where we are to like imagine that scaling up. So like what was the vision? At least how was it ideally expected to work to be able to get to the kind of volume and scale that you need? I think the vision was that we would build tech that would take a lot of the lift and that our users who were in their 20s and 30s. So I'll, I'll transition back and forth between users and clients, not to offend anyone. I'm just, my brain is half fintech and sure. half. But, you know, at LearnVest, our, our clients, um, you know, the, the vision was that we would build tech that would enable them to, to self-serve with a lot of the planning work. Um, and that, 
advisors could play ultimately a different role, more of a coach. We could do more like one-to-many sort of stuff and be able to make it scalable. Um, So I think that was ultimately the vision. I think the tech took longer to build. And then ultimately there was an acquisition by Northwestern Mutual, um, which sort of froze our tech in time. And then there was, you know, no, and that was in 2015, May of 2015. Um, so that that changed the trajectory of us being able to achieve the things that we wanted to achieve. But I think we were always, you know, trying to move towards asking more of the tech so that we could ask less of the human and, you know, figure out the happy medium of cost and price point to, you know, provide service to a, a, a vastly larger number of people. So the vision wasn't necessarily like just we're going to try to scale up uh you know, a zillion clients per advisor with these advisors doing financial plans and just get them the number of clients that they have to have as clients when you're when you're charging a couple hundred dollars per client. The the I guess it, my my interpretation of that is it's almost more like no, no no our goal is our goal eventually is to build technology that people will pay nineteen dollars a month for to get their ongoing financial planning and maybe just ping a human when they need it. And the the humans were doing the work until the tech got to the point that the tech could do the work and then you wouldn't need the humans as much anymore. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think we had the sense the whole time that humans didn't have to do everything that they were doing, but humans like humans, I think was another learning that we had was that, you know, backing off the human component and dialing up the tech component, not only is it a huge build from a tech perspective, but that humans really liked working with humans. And so finding that right role for humans and right role for tech was something that we continued to sort of learn and iterate on um, and and never sort of got, I don't think, to where we, well, I know, n- never got to the, the outcome that we were hoping to get to. So tell us some more about just the, the learnings that you were finding. So I think you did have a very high volume of clients for what you were serving, like many, many thousands of clients that went into the LearnVest system, which is you know w- way bigger scale in serving folks in their 20s and 30s and 40s than uh, than most advisory firms ever reach, you know, where we like top out at 50 to 100 clients. So right. I just would love to hear more, like what what were you finding that was either working or not working as you were trying to figure out this balance of what should be tech and what should be human? Yeah, that's a good question. And the model was very different. You know, we we in the early days, you know, we're we're sort of pre-build on the tech side. And so we were asking a lot of a very robust Excel spreadsheet um, on the planning side. Um, but you know, I initially started at LearnVest working either 20 or 25 hours a week, I can't remember, um, when I was a new mom. And I was taking five new clients per week. So I, 20 new clients a month. Um, I was, you know, meeting with them, getting their data, building a plan and then delivering the plan. And I was doing five clients a week on 25 hours. So the depth of planning that we were doing was somewhat lighter and I, and I, but it, but it was still fairly robust for what the clients needed. And I think, you know, some of the learnings that we had, some of them were difficult to swallow than others were, were things around, like a start with nothing mentality. Like I had never thought before as a CFP in private practice with, I'm not going to say unlimited fee, but a healthy fee, right? A a fee that is thousands of dollars per year and as much time as I needed 
um, and as much data as I could get the client to, to provide. And when they were paying the fees they were, they would assume that they would give us everything. Um, when you start from a, a sort of the opposite mentality of how little data and little time and little money does the client have to pay for me to provide as much value as possible. And mm. it was a really fundamentally like kind of flip on its head way to think about things of what if we started from nothing and what does impact weighted work look like for these clients but i but i think you know we were we were doing some pretty good planning work there um it's just that we were filtering it through an impact filter really heavily of well do i really need to know that piece of information and do they do I really need to spend that much time doing that calculation or is a quick back of the napkin all that we need in terms of fidelity um, to guide the client well in this moment? I'm intrigued just with that like that label and conceptual framework of impact weighted work. Like what what's the smallest increment of stuff we can do that creates a meaningful impact for the client? Right. I'm just thinking like practically like do I need every single line item of their budget or do I just need to be able to get to a quick slice that says your outflows are more than your inflows? We probably need to have a conversation about that. Yes, exactly. And as an advisor, you know, it it was really, it, it, it took time. It was transformative and it was really challenging because, you know, I remember one of our projects once for the advice strategy team was if you could only get 12 pieces of data how good of a financial plan could you write? You know, and and as a CFP, my mm. initial reaction is like, don't be ridiculous. I can't provide any value with 12 pieces of data. That's, you know, does last name count? You know, just sort of like <laughs> totally offended by the question. But in yeah, having- I guess if, if that's literally your constraint, like, yeah, we're going to be on a first name basis because I'm not giving <laughs> up one of my 12 pieces of data to get your last name. Like, right. we're just, I'm not even we're sure just I doing... know your first name. Like, so I exactly. <laughs> Here's your plan. <laughs> That's right. So, um, but but I think in having to like continuously over the years that I was at LearnVest have to solve those same sorts of problems um, with an economy of again like data, time, and fees. You know, those those were like very heavy constraints. Um, I I think that what emerged was like this really clear understanding of like what how to use that impact filter of of what could what could you do with twelve pieces of data after you get past the offense of the question. Um, and and have to really dive into that. Um, what what could you do, and what would those pieces need to be, and what where what would the limitations be, and how could we create a, you know around those limitations? And right. it just fundamentally transforms. I don't know. It transformed the way I see all of what we do yeah. as planners to to have to think that way. And you know, whereas even at the time, you know, the the concept of directionally correct advice really. Um, rub me the wrong way. You know, it was very, it was, it was just, it was hard to say that out loud. It, it, it felt like it was a compromise of like, eh, we're just trying to get to good enough. And as a, you know, perfectionist, that was, uh-huh. that really felt terrible. Um, and as an analytical person that, that really felt terrible. Um, but I think, you know, even, even more as I like get older and recognize in my, in my work as a planner now, like, it wasn't just that it was good enough. It was as good as matters for the set of decisions in front of the client. It gave right. them everything they needed to be able to make the decisions that were in front of them and that there wasn't any greater level of fidelity or you know, exact calculations that would have ultimately changed 
the piece of advice that I gave them, which is dial up your 401k by 3% and put more in your emergency fund and add $100 to your credit card pay down. And that's what you're capable of achieving right now. And so I, so I think just sort of that realization of like, what do I really need to know to be able to inform the set of decisions that are right in front of the client right now? I'm, I'm fascinated by the framing because to me, I mean, the, this has application far beyond what you happen to be doing in LearnVest. You know, your, your timed out of money limitations were perhaps a little bit more severe than, than, the, than the traditional advisory firm. But to me, there's I mean, any firm, any business up and down the line, I would argue very strongly could could draw a lot from that same kind of impact weighted work sort of filter to say, hey, great, you know, if you've gained thousands of dollars per client, you have a lot more room to to do even more cool, super impactful stuff. But the question still becomes for whatever you're doing to earn whatever that fee is, are you doing the most impact weighted work or are you doing the the stuff that you do because the stuff everybody else does because it's just kind of always the way that things have been done and no one's actually taken a critical look about whether that really, really needs to be done and whether clients really value it for the amount of time and energy and cost that you spend to create or do or produce that thing. Yep. Yeah, it's that's right. And I, th- I think the idea of starting with a proverbial blank sheet of paper is really overwhelming when you're used to starting with the soup to nuts CFP, we do all these things, 100 page plans. Um, when you when you go down to say, okay, I'm going to start with nothing and I'm only going to put stuff on this page that has the most impact possible, um, limited by those three constraints, time, data, and money. Um, I think what the work product that you get out of it is phenomenally better than what you get from, I'm just going to start with everything and try to pare down. Because it forces a way of thinking that's unique to you to you as an advisor, right? Who you serve. I serve people with equity comp in tech in their 30s and early 40s with young families who live in really high cost areas. That's my niche. That's who I serve. And so I apply this impact weighted sort of filter to what do they need right now? What do they need most from me in this relationship? I started my deliverables with a blank slate and said, what decision do they need to make in this moment of the process? And what do they need to see visually to support them in making the best decision they can at this moment? What information needs to be juxtaposed? And then like, you know, making sure that there's nothing extra on the page. That's how I design my deliverables. And and that's how I design the work I do. And I think I've done a great job for my niche, but the same can be applied to any niche or any, you know, any practice. And it's, it's, it's really fundamentally changed the way that I do pretty much everything. Yeah, I, I still remember a, a session I was at for an advisor conference. I feel bad. I can't remember who the speaker was for what was a really impactful session. And he had had a kind of a similar discussion that, you know, back, I mean, 10 years ago, the big, big discussion was, performance reports for clients and all the firms made like really nice output, really nice deliverable investment performance reports for clients because like online portal stuff hadn't really ramped up yet. Uh, And so like client reviews to typically have really nice uh, professional client deliverables. And he facilitated this whole discussion of, you know, how much time does your firm spend producing all these reports? And it was firms that are meeting two to four times a year and like, 30 to 60 minutes of work each time you make this really nice report. And like, if you went through the math, like it was hundreds of hours that mm. a, f- a typical firm would spend. And then the, you know, the question that he at, like his zinger question that he built up to was, 
when you finish the meeting, how many clients take the report with them? Mm. My answer was like basically no one. Like they they look at it while they're in the office, but like no one would take it with them after the meeting because uh, you know they they got the information they needed. And and the question was like, well, why are you spending like hundreds of hours of work? to make a deliverable that clients think is so not valuable, they literally don't even want it at the end of a one hour meeting. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, like it's, it's a similar vein to, to what you're talking about. Like no one in that room had ever looked at it from the lens of how much impact does it really have? You know, like does the, is the impact of this thing worth the hundreds of hours of time our staff puts in to make all these reports for every single client meeting all year long? And the answer and the good filter was like, if they don't even want to take it with them, it could not have been that important to mm. them. There's probably a way to give them that information in a minuscule fraction of the time if all they really need is something to look at in the meeting to get a number because they don't even care enough to take it with them. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, you know, it brings up for me, we did, so I've, I spent a long time curating the deliverables that I created and I actually ran a workshop in early 2021 to share the process and the templates with other advisors. Um, I've spent a lot of time on the deliverables and um, I do a client survey every year. And so I just, it's usually in September, or October. So I just ran it for 2022 and I really wanted to focus on the deliverables. Um, and so I asked a lot of questions about, are they too short? Are they too long? You know, what do, what do you use them for? And among the things I asked is, do you use them for preparing for the meeting? Do you, are they helpful in during the meeting? Cause I work with everybody remotely. Um, and are they helpful after the meeting? And mm. I, you know, I just pulled up my my stats because I thought it might be interesting to you. Eighty nine percent told them that it told me that they were helpful in preparing for the meeting. Seventy nine percent told me they were helpful during the meeting, and sixty eight percent told me that they're helpful as a reference after the meeting. Interesting. And so yeah. there are a material number of people that find it useful as a reference after the meeting, but the weighting even in that data was much more. This is mostly about preparing for the meeting and then having a memento of what you discussed. Mm-hmm. Which just, if you think about it, this as that's the frame. Like, would you would you make that report differently? Right. Would you prepare it differently? Exactly. Yep. So, so you had a big learning experience in in building for this round, LearnVest, of trying to get to this crux of, you know, how do we do impact weighted work? Like, how do we filter down with these constraints of data, time, and fees to try to have maximal impact for, or like within those constraints. So I hear that as one whole mental framing shift. So curious, like what else, I don't know, were learnings or takeaways of either what was working or what didn't work just as you tried to build this high volume business for lower dollar amount clients? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many learnings there, but I think among them were, you know, at the end we had, I think, 45 planners, most of them CFPs, and and many of them homegrown, right? Barista to CFP sort of stories. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I think Learn Vested well was bring people into the business um, in a way that didn't require any sales or anything, and you got to actually yeah. learn financial planning. Um, but how do you have a consistent branded um, process um, and experience, a, a consistent branded client experience across 45 different people giving advice. And, you know, it's something that as a, um, 
as a tech startup and as a like online, you know, digital brand, we'd think very much about. I think as an in an in an RIA setting, you think a little less about the brand experience. You want your client experience to be really solid across the board, but you think less about is it alignment with our brand. Um, but at LearnVest, we were very brand forward. And so one of my roles at LearnVest was to be the brand voice manager and to train the planning team on how to effectively not only communicate and connect and advise, um, but to represent the brand in an, an authentic way that could still feel like you were being yourself. It's sort of like mm. we needed everyone to feel like they were at the ice cream shop and whether they were getting mint chocolate chip or cookies and cream was okay, but it always needed to be an ice cream shop. And so I think, you know, going through the process of figuring out how do you create a consistent branded experience um, at a, at a, when, when the services are largely provided by humans in a way that still allows the the, the humans to be who they are. Um, it also- So what was the takeaway of just how did you find that balance? Again, to me, that's not unique for LearnVest necessarily. Like a lot of advisory firms as they scale up and become multi-advisor are trying to figure out how do we how do we make sure the clients have a, have a consistent experience no matter which advisor at our firm they end up working with. Yeah, I think what it did is it, it forced me to codify sort of how I communicated with clients, how I felt like our brand needed to be represented with clients, what the experience should look and feel like. Um, things like, you know, what are the three words that a client should say about their experience after they get off the call? Um, and and what we got down to, you know, like our brand voice guide, we had we had five principles that I that I came up with um, that allowed advisors to embody the brand without necessarily having to use a script. And there were scripts at some points. I never loved us using scripts. I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I think I have too many bad memories of starting in the industry almost 20 years ago and having to memorize a script and recite it in front of my field vice president that mm-hmm. I never want to impose a script on anyone ever in my whole life ever again. So one of them is, for example, um, uh, be the cheerleader. Um, so what's interesting is like, as I've learned from others who like Megan Lertz, for example, um, that there were some fundamental things within that be, be the cheerleader concept that, mm. um, that, that are actually backed up by some research. Um, I just didn't know it at the time. Um, but in be the cheerleader, it was, it was tangible things like find something that the client has done well already and build momentum from there, which is sort of like a gap in the gain sort of concept, right? But that book hadn't been, I don't right. think it had been written at that time. Um, and so there were these sort of broader five concepts, uh, be the coach, be the cheerleader, be the expert, wide lens, narrow lens, and listen and direct. Those were sort of our five uh, brand wait, wait, wait. voice. I'm, I'm fascinated by this, so I need to, so be the coach. <laughs> Be the yeah, cheerleader. So, uh-huh. Be the expert. Be the expert. Wide lens, narrow lens. Okay. And listen and direct. Those were sort of the five things. And then we had very okay. tangible ways that you could embody each of those. So, you know, be the cheerleader. One of them was find something that they're already doing well. Let them know, like lift them up and say, hey, you're doing a great job at that. And then build on that momentum. Um, for be the expert, it was identifying what you should be the expert on and what you shouldn't be the expert on, right? You're not an expert on what the client feels or who they are or what they want for their life. What you are an expert on are the things like how an IRA works and whether a 401k is appropriate for them, et cetera. And knowing how to communicate as an expert, you know, 
using language like I recommend because and given that you want to XYZ, I recommend that you blah, blah, blah. So um, finding ways, you know, listen and direct, you know, we were on, we were on the phones with clients. We weren't even video calls, <laughs> yep. um, but finding ways to, to truly be a good listener. Right. And, and, and again, like none of this will blow your mind, but repeating to somebody, if you find, you know, if somebody is sharing something personal, um, repeating back that, that, you know, thank you for sharing that with me or repeating back what you heard. Um, if you find that a client is repeating the same thing over and over, it's likely because they aren't feeling heard. And so taking the time, instead of being frustrated that they keep saying the same thing, take the time to echo back what you heard and then move them on to a different place. Um, you know, how to direct a call in a way that's very, um, considerate and respectful. You know, I'm so glad you're sharing that with me. That is really helpful context for me to have, you know, in order so that we can get there a little later, would you mind if we shifted our focus here? Um, so those kinds of ways of how to be a good listener and also how to direct a call mm-hmm. and, and sort of stay, I don't want to say in control, but stay, you know, being able to keep things on track to be able to provide the experience that the client should have. Um, so it was things like that that um, that were kind of at the at the root of what we wanted the the client to feel when they got off of a call. How do we need to behave in the in the in the meeting with the client to be able to elicit those sort of feelings in the client afterwards? And um, so so that was one of the ways that we accomplished that. And. So um, then- yeah. What was be the coach and wide lens, narrow lens? I'm just, I'm fascinated by these. <laughs> so wide lens, narrow lens was about knowing when to take the client is to zoom out with the client and when to zoom in. Um, so one of the, one of the sort of uh, points under there was show them the elephant and then show them the first three bites, right? Like how do you eat an elephant mm. one bite at a time? Um, what a, what a weird saying, but um <laughs> But, but that was one of those under wide lens, narrow lens is okay. sometimes somebody needs to be zoomed out and understand the big picture of like, I know that you're asking me these detailed questions about whether you should quit Spotify or not. But when we zoom out, that's not going to have a big impact on what we're ultimately trying to achieve. In the big picture, mm. here are the dynamic dynamics that are at play in your financial life. And I think if we focus here, we'll have more impact because we need to think about where are your levers, right? Like where are the most powerful levers that you can pull to get to where you want to go? And those are over here. So that's kind of the wide lens idea. And then the narrow lens idea, because sometimes people are in that big picture thinking and you need to help direct them towards, okay, so let's talk about what those first three bites would look like. If you want this big vision, if you want this big elephant thing to happen, here's where you start. The first thing is to enroll in your 401k and get your match. Um, So that's what the wide lens, narrow lens was. And then did I miss any of them? Be the coach. Uh, be, the, be the coach. Um, be the coach was a lot about what to do when your client inevitably doesn't do what they were supposed to do. <laughs> uh-huh. so, so that one was a lot about um, saying the truth, but then also and, and helping them understand what didn't work without being judgmental or shaming. And then getting them back on track for using that learning to then figure out how to move forward. So we would always talk about if you're ever looking back in a client's life of why they made a decision they did or, or why they did something or didn't do something, mm-hmm. that you're looking back to be the detective 
and and not to be the sheriff, right? You're just looking back to understand and say, "Huh, that's interesting because we had talked about spending, you know, $300 a week and you spent $500 a week or $1000 a week. You know, I I I wonder if we can work together to figure out where that came from." And so you're in a detective mode and not a sheriff mode of like you did the wrong thing, you know. Um you were supposed to do this and you did this instead, so do better next time. Um, so, so those kinds of things were underneath be the coach. So what ultimately brought this learn best journey to an end for you? Oh, um, ultimately what brought it to an end for me was it was two and a half years post acquisition by Northwestern Mutual. And it was becoming increasingly clear that learn best tech and marketing and product and all of the phenomenal teams that we had built in New York, in our New York office, because our planning um, operation was run through Arizona, but our other stuff was run in New York, um, that they were shifting focus to building tech, building marketing, building product, et cetera, for Northwestern Mutual. And they do business in a fundamentally different way. And there was no longer... Um, the ability for LearnVest to evolve. LearnVest got to some extent frozen in time um, in 2015. Not that we mm-hmm. didn't still have new clients come our way right. or that we didn't have new LearnVest at work, you know, major partners come on between 2015 and 2018. But and you couldn't evolve the offering in the same way because the resources were starting to get shifted internally to Northwestern to build Northwestern y things, not LearnVest y things. That's right. Yes. And so, um, you know, once that writing was clearly on the wall, um, I think a mutual friend of ours who was my my boss at the time, Stephanie Kirkpatrick, um, you know, we ultimately teamed up and our final project at the company, we both left afterwards, was to close down LearnVest. So we had to oh, figure man. out what do we what do we do with the team? You know, we had 70 people, 40, 40 or 45 planners plus you know, IT and um, management and all kinds of stuff out of our Arizona office. What happens to that team? And what happens to the 14,000 clients? And what happens to the Learn Best at Work relationships that we had? Um, and so we spent five months sorting all of that out. And then in May of 2018, um, we killed Learn Best. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> So I, you know, it was, it was, I had mixed feelings at the end because on the one hand, it was, it was the death of a dream that I cared so deeply about. But at the same time, I was sort of glad to see it end because it wasn't being invested in and and the vision, you know, Mm. wasn't going to come to fruition. And um, so it it did feel like it should get shut down at that time. And so, um, so yeah, so I, I left when LearnVest closed and, um, and that was hard. You know, I, I sort of entered like a lost period of like, what do yeah. I do now? You know, I'm I'm half fintech. I felt like, I don't know, there's some character in a movie I'm trying to think of that's like, is it Robocop? That's like half human and half yeah. half robot. You know, I felt like fundamentally I was two different. I, w- I was a combination of two different things. You know, I had that seven years of planning practice, sort of that vision. And then I had at that point close to six years at LearnVest and didn't feel like I could go back to what I was doing before LearnVest. Also didn't know what the path would look like to stay at LearnVest and, right. or, you know, stay in fintech. Um, and, and it, and it was challenging. You know, I think I had, had a taste of the depth of impact that you can have in private practice. And I really deeply loved that. 
Um, and I also had a, had a taste of the breadth of impact that you can right. have in fintech. You know, I wrote content that millions of people read and I, you know, managed, you know, and helped to train a team that served thousands of clients. And I, I didn't know how to move forward and satisfy both the breadth side and the depth side of the impact that I wanted to have. So where did you ultimately land? Like what did come <laughs> next as you, as you wound down at LearnVest? Yeah. So what came next was um, I started speaking professionally more. It's something that I'd always done as part of, you know, part of my role at LearnVest and 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 even prior. Um, but I I focused there a little bit more. So I did some larger speaking engagements. I spoke alongside, you know, other speakers like Rachel Hollis and James Clear. I got to speak to twenty thousand people, which was totally overwhelming, but awesome. Um, wow. And you know, got to do some, some, some cool stuff. You know, I said that I was going to write a book cause I thought I would, but it was really just cause I had no idea what to do. I, I just didn't know how to have impact. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to write a book. Um, I didn't write a book. Um, but I sort of just organically founders and leaders at other fintech companies started reaching out and saying, Hey, I'd love to have you consult on this project. Can you write advice methodology for our software build or for our, you know, content strategy? Can you do our content strategy? Can you help us with product strategy and figure out what to go and where? Can you help us, you know, um, move our brand to a place that it connects better with women and younger, you know, millennials? Um, and so I ended up getting to do a lot of consulting for companies like, you know, SoFi and LearnLux and Elvest and others which was really fulfilling. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And it was giving oh. me that breadth of impact, but I was still I was still longing for that depth of impact that you get to have when you work one-on-one -on -one with clients. Interesting. I mean, that just companies like SoFi, Elvest, I mean, those are those are very big high profile broad reach companies unto themselves. But I guess the still the dynamic is how do I get the deeper impact of individual client work combined with the broad impact of doing cool stuff in technology with this experience skill set you made and creating advice methodologies that can be embedded into technology. Exactly. It was kind of like, you know, which which kid do you like better, Charlie or Wally? Yeah. And I just, I couldn't decide. I, I like them both. Um, I like breadth of impact and I like depth of impact. And I think, you know, the rest of my career will have some flavor of both. And from an hour standpoint, commitment standpoint, might go further in one direction in seasons or the other direction in seasons. But I don't think I'll ever be completely, completely RIA or completely fintech ever again. So, so then, well, like, how does this sit today? What what is what is the balance and joint existence at this point? I'm I'm kind of half and half right now. <laughs> So um, I I launched an RIA in February of 2020. Um, I was still doing consulting. Well, that, was, that was good timing. Yeah, it actually was phenomenal timing. Um, but yeah, it, it was weird timing. It was not what I expected. Um, but the work was so deeply meaningful that honestly, like it emotionally buoyed me quite a bit in that first year of COVID. And I'm utterly grateful for that. But I was still consulting and just figured, you know, I have enough people coming to me saying like, hey, Nat, we've worked together or, you know, I know you or I know your husband or whatever that like, and I've got equity comp and I'm in tech and, um, 
you know, I need, I need some help. And so I was like, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to do this the wrong way. I'm going to, I'm going to launch an RIA just so that I cannot be worried compliance wise that I'm giving advice that I shouldn't be. And, um, my, you know, my big launch of my RIA was I posted on LinkedIn and said, Hey, I have an RIA. So if you need help, you let me know. And that was my marketing. Um, and that was it. And then, and then the practice just grew like crazy. Um, so I had 39 clients in the first year. I've never worked full-time in my RIA. I've always been part-time. Um, so I was spending half my time consulting in fintech, and then I was spending half my time serving clients. And I was doing deep in the weeds, comprehensive planning. Um, you know, this was, this was the real deal of financial planning. Um, 39 and- clients in the first year. That's just a monster growth year. And that's all from the personal network that you'd build over the preceding decade in the technology, in the in the fintech realm, that meant you could get clients in your network who were in the fintech realm and needed financial planning advice? Pretty much. I mean, I, I have done some podcast interviews here and there, but they've largely come to me and said like, hey, can I interview you? Or my friend has a podcast. Can you be a guest? They want to talk about personal finance. Um, and so and you know, I've I've done some writing for Business Insider here and there, um, which I've been grateful for. But but yeah, largely it was just from my network and, um, and yeah, and you know, it's it's funny. Like in at Ameriprise, I think our best year ever, we got fifty new clients in a year, and that was like incredible. Um, at LearnVest, I was taking five new clients a week. So then when I got to the RIA, I was sort of just this mixed bag of expectation of like, I don't know, is is 39 clients working part-time a lot or a little? I, I don't know, but that's what I'm doing. You know, that's just how the numbers sorted out. Um, so, so it was great. Um, but by, you know, 15 months in, I had to take a wait list because I, I just couldn't onboard more than four new clients a month. Um, and so I've been on a wait list ever since um, and, you know, continued to do consulting work. Um, I actually took a full, uh, not a full-time role. I took a actual like W2, I'm on the team. I have equity in the company sort of role at Monarch Money um, in, in June of 2021. So I've been there almost 18 months um, as head of advice and um, still run the RIA. And I have another lead advisor um, that I think I mentioned her before, Cindy, um, she actually was an advisor at LearnVest as well, so I've known her for a long time, and she's phenomenal. And um, she takes all new clients, so she's gotten nineteen. We we finally got to start taking people from the waitlist in January of this year, and so she's taken all new clients this year. I haven't taken any new clients, and she's at nineteen new clients for the year, um, which is great. So I imagine by the end of next year she'll be full, um, and we'll need to figure out how to grow from there. So. Like, how do you contrast the like deep planning work you're doing now at the RA with the kind of planning work you were doing at LearnVest? Um, you know, it's interesting actually watching Cindy's learning curve because I had had years of private practice experience before, and Cindy hadn't. She was a homegrown from LearnVest. Um, she did have a significant learning curve in the first year when she was doing paraplanning work for me. Um, in terms of doing the deep planning work of, you know, reviewing mm. statements and equity comp and all that kind of stuff. And she did an incredible job in 2020 uh, and 2021 coming up on that learning curve. And then that prepared her in 2022 to start to work with clients directly. Um, and I, I, you know, I trust her implicitly. She's, she's 
a phenomenal advisor and I feel proud for, for clients of the practice to, to work with Cindy. Um, but it, but it is different, you know, and, and I think we're serving a different demographic, right? It's sort of like I went from serving people in their fifties and sixties when I started to serving people in their mostly twenties, maybe early thirties at LearnVest. And now I'm in like the mid thirties to mid forties range. Hmm. And just with the way that tech has, you know, I'm in tech, my husband is also in tech. Um, we're in this demographic as well of people who live in high cost areas who have substantial yeah. amounts of equity comp. Um, you know, finances are not linear. We have these inflection points that we hit um, and we need to make really strategic decisions about what we do with that equity comp in those moments. Um, so it's interesting. It's 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 not a whole new world, but I find that what I learned in the first seven years of how to run a practice. And then what I unlearned and relearned at LearnVest is, you know, it's all sort of coming together in the practice that I get to run now. So then help us understand what you're doing on the, on the Monarch money side. Well, I guess even as a starting point for those who aren't familiar, like what does Monarch money do? Yeah, good question. Uh, Monarch money was founded by uh, three guys, Val, Ozzy, and John. And um, Val, who's our CEO, was the original product manager at mint.com um, many, many, many years ago. And, you know, I think the short story is sort of that he's he's finishing what he never got to finish, what he started at mint okay. and never got to finish. Um, so at the moment, uh, Monarch money is, you know, a, a phenomenal budgeting app, um, never ad supported, never will be. Um, so it's a premium product. There's a there's a monthly cost to it, um, but it's a it's a PFM, so a personal financial management tool to track net worth, to track budget, to link all of your accounts, um, to be able to get as deep in the weeds with your budget as you want, or to have a really high level understanding of where all your money is going, um, without having to get deep in the weeds, but really getting a a, a pretty easy good snapshot of where things are going. Um, and I think why I came on board at Monarch is because. Ultimately, we want to build that thing, um, that TurboTax for financial planning, that that ability for you know many many millions of people to be able to say this account is for this goal, and I want this goal to look this way, and here's how on track I am, and um, how do I make decisions between do I pay off debt, do I save this dollar, or do I invest this dollar? And what does that mean for me? And what's the best choice? And what are my trade-off decisions? Um, you know, we we are trying to build that for um, consumers to be able to access, which is, you know, the mission that I cared about before I joined LearnVest. And so um, it's been that's, a real- That's almost the tech, the, the tech that LearnVest never quite fully got to building- to shift out the humans, you're building now a version of that with Monarch, but they're starting with the tech and not the humans. Yes. Perfectly said. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I, I have to ask, just so you're framing that, like, is there, is there an advisor version of this as well? I mean, we do have these, <laughs> we do have these conversations with clients as well, right? I, I know, I know a lot of advisors over the years that always lamented, like, I just wish there was an advisor interface for, for Mint. I mean, I, I, I'll admit from my end, like I always felt like Mint missed a giant opportunity 10 years ago to not build a, a an advisor paid version. I mean, eMoney was charging $200 a month 10 years ago for a PFM portal that was not as good as Mint at the time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if, if, if Mint was charging $200 per 
per month per person, I'm pretty sure their economic model would have worked a lot better. Yeah, yeah, it's funny you ask that. Um, we we did not set out uh, when when our founders started Monarch to say we're going to provide it to advisors, but we have had such overwhelming demand, just organic demand um, from advisors um, wanting to use Monarch for their clients. And so we have a we ran a small advisor beta last year. Um, and we are actually expanding the beta to a, a broader set of advisors. Um, so um, I don't know if we can link to it in the show notes if people are interested in it, but um, I think it's monarchmoney.com slash advisors um, to learn more about it. But but yeah, I mean, from it's interesting, like not only financial advisors, but CPAs and also financial coaches have all been really, really interested in using Monarch for their clients because they want their clients to have a dashboard for, you know, a, a command yeah. central for their money. And and Monarch does a beautiful job of that. So is it is it just focused around spending, budgeting, cash flow as Mint was versus like also tracking net worth versus personal capital had a lot of traction with this, but they got pretty deep on the investment data and performance reporting as well because they were attached to an AUM firm, so they had an interest in it. But uh, like which which parts of this domain is Monarch actually getting into? Yeah, good question. So budgeting and net worth, absolutely. Um, we're, we're already at a point where the Monarch does a phenomenal job of both of those things. We also track investments, although I will say that it's not as robust um, as it will be. Um, and what we're building is the ability to like assign your accounts to your actual goals that you care about. And um, be able to organize your financial life in terms of your goals too, and not just your net worth and your cash flow um, and your high-level investment portfolio, um, which is exciting because that's that's what I get to help build. And out of curiosity, like what happens for all the people who are already buried in mint and don't want to have to start over again? <laughs> I was one of those too, I have to say. <laughs> I use I was a very early adopter of Mint and I used Mint for so many years. And LearnVest had our own version of of Mint. I mean, you know, ultimately of a of a budgeting PFM. Yeah. And and then I just used both because I didn't want to lose my history um from mm -hmm. from Mint. Um so at Monarch, we built a Mint importer so you can export your data out of Mint and into Monarch to not lose your history. Um because we had a lot of, you know, a lot of us on the team, to be candid, were in that same position of like, we yeah. were, we had used well, Mint for almost 15 years or whatever, and, you know, really didn't want to lose that tracking. Yeah. So, yeah. And it actually, like, you can manage that import. I mean, just like, that's a, it's a lot of data to move over if people have been in Mint for a long time. It is. It, it is. It is a lot to move over, but, um, but yeah. And, and what we're finding with Monarch is like, because we've designed it to, be as high level or as detailed with your budgeting as possible. We we are, for the most part, like um, framework agnostic. Like if you want to man, if you want to manage your budget, you know, fixed variable, whatever, that's fine. If you want to do fixed flex non monthly, that's great. Um, we are not wineabbers. I think that's the only thing is that we we don't. Um, if somebody is a diehard wineabber and loves being able to sort of spend each dollar of their account into a, you know, that that's not really the approach that we take at Monarch. But um, 
but because we offer a lot of flexibility, um, it's just ended up being a tremendous tool. Um, and our designers are phenomenal. So it's just, it's, it's clean and it's beautiful. Um, and we've had a, a, a lot of really good success with it. And, you know, as an advisor myself, I'm like really excited for us to expand the advisor yeah. beta, um, which I've been, you know, wanting and asking for and, and moving towards yeah. for, for months internally, because um, it really does make a big difference. And, um, you know, we spend a lot of time on data aggregation of how do we have the best account linking out there? You know, nothing is going to be perfect, but... How can we be the best out there, hands down? So as you look back on this journey, what surprised you the most about what it takes to build some kind of tech-driven advice offering for young people? I feel like you've done this now in multiple different iterations. Mm. So what, like, What's the biggest surprise of you know, just w- what you're finding that it takes or works or doesn't work to, to solve this? Yeah, that's such a good question. I, I think one of the one of the key learnings at LearnVest was that people really don't know what financial planning is. And that's for a lot of reasons, but largely because our industry allows many people to have the same title who do different things. Mm-hmm. And it's very confusing to understand, is financial planning products? Is it insurance? Is it advice? And 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 so that just the sheer like education of what does it mean to do it? And then what does it mean to do digitally? I think that was a really key thing at LearnVest that really was unexpected for me. Um, and then I think, you know, in building at at Monarch, I think where, where I've come from in the almost 20 years that I've been a financial advisor now is a real understanding of where you need to be exact and where you really don't. And how will the calculations be used? Because when you think about trying to be trying to do every calculation exactly um, for a, a person's entire financial life. And you don't get to curate, right? In an RIA, you get to curate and say, I'm taking this person as a client. They make between this and this. They have equity comp that looks like this. Their age is this. They have this many kids. And you get to curate into like a pretty narrow, if you want to, a pretty yeah. a pretty narrow subset of like, okay, my tools are all set up well to, if, you know, I've got my processes. When you look at creating something that millions of people are going to use, you mm. have millions of different use cases. And um, so I, I think really like having clarity on where is the simpler answer um, and maybe the less exact answer, the right one, um, not just from a time to build standpoint, but, but, a, but the right answer, period. Um, I think that's been a really interesting thing to sort of evolve my thinking on over time. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Oh, um, I think there, there have been, <laughs> there have been several, um, but I, I think, I think the, the low point for me, I would probably say is after I left LearnVest and just didn't know where to go in my career, I didn't know what I was going to be next. Am I going to be a financial planner at a firm? Am I going to start a firm? Am I going to work in FinTech? Do I go be an advisor at Facet? Like I just, I had no idea what to do and it all felt really overwhelming and, um, that was really that was really a low point for me, um, but it, it also caused me to think about things differently. I, I think from 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 another perspective, you know, I by the time I had left LearnVest, I was making a good income, and to to kind of just cut everything off completely and say, oh, 
I, I think there was like an ego check of like, okay, you have no job and you're making nothing and you don't know what you want to be when you grow up again. Um, at, you know, in my late thirties um, at the time, I think that was a real, a real ego check, but I'm, but I'm so grateful for it because it allowed me to really shift my thinking into impact. Like how, how can I be net helpful and where can I be net helpful? And if I could, because I, I couldn't, I couldn't see the future. Like I, I, I didn't have a vision for what I even wanted the future to be. And that was really hard as much as I squinted or, you know, um, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't see what was ahead. And so it caused me to say, okay, well, how can I be net helpful? And what's the next step? What's the next best thing I can do? And if I'm not ready to make a decision because I can't see the future and I don't know what decision is right, then how do I take, what, what's the next set of information or the next set of decisions? And I think having to like go through that myself did transform the way that I think about financial planning overall. You know, when I work with clients, there's no expectation that I'm giving them the right number and that that number is going to be their freedom number for the rest of their lives and nothing's ever going to change and everything's going to go exactly according to plan. Um, you know, clients know that we're going to we're going to evolve your goals over time. Every every Q1, we're going to say, hey, here's what you're on track for, but what do you want to shoot for now? Um, and and that ultimately we're trying to build resilience and flexibility and mobility and adaptability in their financial life so that they can be ready for whatever's next. Because sometimes we can see what we want for the future and sometimes we can't. And I think unless I had walked through that myself, I don't think I would really be able to embody it in the way that I approach the work, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's It's an interesting frame that, you know, when you when you go through that kind of transition of I was doing this thing for a long time and it was going pretty well, but now it's come to an end and I'm at a giant crossroads of what to do next. There is, you know, just for anybody that's gotten whacked in the face with that at some point, like it's very humbling relative to the traditional financial planning approach of, well, you just set your goal of when you're going to retire at like 50 or 55 or 62 or 65 or whenever it is. And then you're going to so diligently save and invest every year over the next X years to get there. And like we can, we can run all the math about how to do that. But, you know, when you hit one of those life transition moments that are that life transition y, I, I've known a lot of advisors that went through that and then kind of came back to the planning process feeling like, wow we really are making this more exact than it can possibly be because I had no idea my life was going to take the turn that it ended up taking. Totally. Totally. That's very well said. And that's exactly, I mean, you know, you, you could, you could tell a story about my career that, oh, it, it all makes perfect sense, you know, but it, but it doesn't. I mean, I, I just, I, I led with my gut in terms of what is meaningful work for me in this moment and how do I have positive impact? And I have stayed true to those things all, all 18, 19 years. But, you know, I, there's no way I could have imagined that this is where I would have been. Um, you know, and, and I think one of the biggest surprises of my career is, you know, I, I sure hope this comes off the right way, Michael, but like what I'm capable of. You know, that, that has been one of the most surprising things when I, when I think about what I dreamed of doing someday in that, in those early seven years at, at Neil, in Neil's practice, you know, what, what I thought success looked like for me and what I was capable of at that time. And then seeing what I've gotten to, 
learn and accomplish and grow in and and where I am now is just like I'm just I'm just getting started. I'm just learning so much as I go and that I just didn't see it that way. You know, I thought I'm going to learn the things and then I'm going to do the thing and then I'm going to be an, a firm owner. And then that that's as much impact as I can have. And that's, I couldn't see any other path. And I think now I just see so many potential paths and um, looking back, it's, I, it, it surprises me what I was capable of stepping into. I never would have thought that I would have launched a firm and had so many new clients and been able to you know, attract so many phenomenal clients. I I just never would have thought I would have been capable of that. And it's been fun. It's been, it's, it's fun to learn and grow like all the time, you know, the, the humility of like, oh man, I'm just never going to know nearly all of it. And so I'm just going to bask in the like learning curve. I'm just going to enjoy the learning curve. So is there like advice or perspective on this that you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you 10 years ago when you were like just getting ready to transition out of a mirror prize and figure out what's next or what the journey is going to be? Oh man. Um, I had a real career, you know, crossroads when I first became a mom and sort of had a, a somewhat of an identity crisis as I tried to figure out what does my career look like? Cause I had one, one trajectory of success and then abruptly left it and, and entered this new unknown world of, of FinTech and thought, Oh, I'll just dip to dip my toe in and I'm a nobody. And, um, I think I would have just told myself that it's going to be okay. <laughs> I know that sounds really silly, but that, that it'll work out that like, and, and that, um, following my gut and following the work that I find most impactful and, and letting that lead in my career isn't going to hold me back. It's going to propel me forward. Hmm. Um, I think, I think I would have told myself that. So what advice would you give to younger, newer advisors just getting started into their careers in the industry today and trying to figure out this path? Mm. Um, oh gosh, that's such a good and big question. Um, I think I would say that it's going to be okay. And that even if you can't see it yet, what you're learning right now, um, what you're learning about what, how the ways you want to do business and the ways you don't want to do business and the people that you want to serve and the people that you don't want to serve, um, that it's, it's all going to come together and it's, and it's all going to like propel you forward and help you in ways that you just can't know yet. You're not in the place of knowing yet, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't work out and that it's okay if the future is fuzzy. You just take that next step and focus there and figure out what your filter is for deciding what that next step is. Is it impact? Is it income? Is it, you know, whatever it is, lifestyle, whatever those things are that are important to you get clear on what your filter is and just trust your filter and move forward one step at a time. And if you can't see the future, what, what you hope the future will be, that, that that's okay. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes is often the, literally the word success means different things to different people. And so you know, you've had this incredibly successful career in navigating to different firms and now fast launch on a growthy advice uh, advisory business while you're doing cool stuff at monarch so like the career side is going well the business side is going well how do you define success for yourself at this point success is my life being in alignment with my values at the end of the day one of my values is meaningful work and so for me you know in in a work realm that means continuing to follow my gut in terms of where can i have impact and 
um, using that as a filter and respecting that as a filter for how I make career decisions. Um, you know, my, my other core values are family, health, community, generosity, adventure. Um, and I think staying true to what those values are and, and letting those lead the decisions that I'm making in life, whether it's career or otherwise, um, I think that's, that's what success looks like for me. I'm struck. That was, that was a very articulated list of, of values. Is that a, a process of something you put yourself through for, uh, like crystallizing those to be able to articulate them that way? Yes. Yeah. So way back in my early Ameriprise days, I got exposure to Doug Lenick, um, who, Mm. you know, then with, along with Chuck created the behavioral financial advisor designation and launched think to perform, um, but I got exposed to core values work way, way back, like 15 plus years ago. And um, and my husband and I have used it all the way along to say, you know, at the end of the day, what are the things that are most important to us and how do we make decisions uh, in alignment with those? And so we use those as a decision-making frame, framework for, you know, our careers, um, for our finances, uh, for the way we spend our time and energy. And they've been really clarifying. And and every year, as I do with clients now, um, you know, Ryan and I have been, my husband Ryan and I have been doing this for almost 20 years, but, or maybe 15 years. Um, but every year we filter through and say, let's reflect on the last year. What was in alignment? What was out of alignment? Where do we need to drive alignment to these, to these values? Um, and then we make really real <laughs> decisions. You know, that was, I, in December of 2017, I had a values conversation with Ryan and we realized that we were one for six. Um, we were in alignment with generosity because we were making more money than we had ever made before and we were giving a lot of money away. Outside of that, we had no time or energy for adventure. Our health was suffering. My husband ended up having a heart attack scare in early 2018. Um, you know, we were fundamentally out of alignment. Me, mm-hmm. oh, the work was no longer meaningful as Learn Best was sort of frozen in time. Um right. And so we made very real changes. You know, I left my job. He actually took a different role at Sonos so that he would be traveling less and be home with the family more. Um, I invested in my health um, to, to resolve some issues there. But, you know, we've made very, very big life decisions based on those values. And um, it's just been a game changer for us. And how did you come to the value list? Like, how did you set them, f- figure out what yours were? We used um, Doug Lennox. Uh, core values card sort. I mean, many, many years ago. (laughs) Um, But that's how we figured it out. So he's got a list of 50. And um, I actually created a a version of a values um, exercise that I use with clients that I sort of curated. Um, And it walks through prompting questions of how to think about what a core value is and how to use them and how to use them in your decision-making framework, um, which is on my website. But um, but that's how we did it. You know, we narrowed down from 50 to six. I think you're supposed to do five, but we, we ended up with six. Um, but that's, that's how we did it. And, and they've remained pretty darn consistent for the last, yeah, like 15 years. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? 
check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.